an unexpected story out of the so-called hot labor summer. Strippers united will never be divided. Binge all four episodes of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union wherever you get your podcasts. Home Broadcast Center. This is Take Two. May Martinez. The number of homeless women in LA County is growing. Now, big reason: domestic violence. You have to flee first, and then contact shelters, and that may or may not be available to you at any given time. It's the topic of our latest special, Pushed Out. We'll talk about causes, potential remedies for this public health crisis. It's coming up on Take Two. Stay with us. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. From 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez coming up. Rethinking and reforming police training from the very beginning. Everybody has certain biases and recognizing what they are to make sure that they don't affect how they police in the community. More on what's changing at police academies just ahead. But first, we talk a lot about the homelessness crisis in L.A. County. But there's one major aspect that really just does not get enough attention. It's estimated that at least half, half of unhoused women are pushed into this situation as a direct result of domestic or intimate partner violence. But while that number has skyrocketed in the last decade, the resources for women fleeing abusive partners is lacking. So starting today, Take-Two is launching an ongoing reporting project to hear about the intersection of these two issues. We're calling it Pushed Out, How Domestic Violence Became the Number One Cause of Women's Homelessness in L.A. To help us better understand what's going on here, producer Julia Paskin has assembled a group of three expert guests. Elizabeth Eastland is executive director of Rainbow Services, which provides resources and shelter to domestic violence survivors in L.A. County. She also co-leads the L.A. County Domestic Violence Homelessness Services Coalition. Thanks for having me. Maricela Rios-Faust is Chief Executive Officer of Human Options based in Orange County. It provides resources, legal services, and shelter for survivors of intimate partner abuse. Maricela, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And also with us, Nikki Brown is a survivor of intimate partner abuse. She experienced homelessness while seeking safety and now practices pro bono family law, working with domestic violence survivors. Nikki, welcome to you as well. Thank you. It's so great to be here. And Nikki, we're going to start with you. Uh, According to national statistics, one in three women, one in three experience some form of intimate partner violence. And that number, as often as I said it to myself, it's still a stunning number. Nikki, why isn't this talked about more? It's the greatest secret that's super common. And nobody wants to admit it. We all were that person. I'll never be abused. I'll never be hit. When I was a kid, I'd say, a man will never hit me. Well, he'll never hit me twice because I'll leave. But there are so many complicated circumstances that make it really hard to leave. And when you can't leave, that element of shame and blame is the thing that makes it so hard to talk about. There's a lot of stigma around this. Uh, And many people may not want to admit that it's happening to them, as you mentioned, Nikki. But uh, Maricela, can you tell us about some of the reasons why it is so difficult for women to leave relationships that clearly cause them physical harm? Yeah, that's such a great question. I think the stigma is definitely one of the largest um, variables when you think about it. Domestic violence is one of the few crimes, if not the only crime, where the victim gets asked, like, why did you stay? Why didn't you leave? You know, we don't typically ask that of victims of other crimes. Many people aren't very aware of the resources that are available to them in the community. You know, I think there's a number of things that create barriers for women that are in abusive relationships to leave. And it's so nuanced that being able to connect with people that understand it is important. And Maricela, really quick, I mean, it is about control a lot of the time. Can you explain what shape that can take and how it might cut a victim off from resources or or other means of escape? So if the abuser controls the finances, that's one way of controlling. If they 
don't allow the victim to work outside the home. That, that's another variable. So oftentimes we find that victims and survivors are disconnected from other family members. Um, they aren't allowed to talk. They get threatened with, um, we're going to take the kids from you. We had actually a client that took, I'd say, well over six months to be able to finally leave the abuser. And part of it was there were cameras set up throughout the house that were monitoring every single movement that this individual made. And it was under the threat of, if I see that you're trying to leave, I will keep the children. I'll take the children away. Um, so anytime the abuser left, he took the kids with him and he would not uh, allow her to have the kids on her own because he knew she'd flee. Um, those are real risk for many women who are being abused and the way that it's controlled is by really threatening to um, impact someone they care deeply about. And Elizabeth, statistically, the most dangerous time for a victim is right after leaving an abuser. Tell us, you know, take us through what kind of planning that can mean for, for some women, especially in this situation. For survivors that are in, in connection with our services, we would definitely support them in creating a safety plan. So creating copies of needed documents, such as birth certificates, you know, checking account information, all sorts of things that they will need to create or set up a, a life beyond um, where they're at now. Just share their story with friends, because as we know, domestic violence, a lot of survivors live in isolation as Adisela talked about. And so we want to encourage them to identify trusted people in their life that they're able to talk to about what's happening to help them with their plan. Ultimately, we want to get them to safety. So come into our shelter or to our community resource center and going from there. Oftentimes survivors will show up at our shelter and they have nothing. They've left with the clothes on their back. Their kids have nothing. So they literally just start over, right? So imagine walking out of wherever you're at right now and having to go find a new place to live with just what you have on. And Nikki, you've experienced this. Uh, it, tell us about how an escape plan like your own often means just leaving everything behind and just trying to figure it out with nothing. That's essentially what I had to do was just leave. I was lucky in as much as I had a little bit of a plan. I concocted one to go camping with my friends and not come home. So at least I got to pack my car. I got my dog. I got my checks. I got my passport. I got some clothes. But many women don't even have an opportunity to do that. You know, couldn't be allowed to go camping with friends. What happens is it's hard to leave because you can't really plan to leave. If you don't have a place to land, it's nearly impossible to make a plan for what's going to happen next because you have to flee first and then contact shelters and say, hi, I am homeless and I need shelter now. And that may or may not be available to you at any given time. We're talking about how intimate partner violence pushes uh, many women into homelessness with survivor and advocate Nikki Brown, executive director of Rainbow Services, uh, Elizabeth Eastland, and also CEO of Human Options, Maricela Rios-Faust. Um, Maricela, another layer to this is economic abuse. Can you tell us about what that means and, and how women who enter into a relationship with financial independence often have to leave with nothing? it goes back to what we talked about earlier in terms of control. So oftentimes the abuser will gain control of the finances and that's exactly what they're managing. They're managing how many gets spent, how much comes in, how much gets out. And it is a very strong way of controlling someone is saying you don't have access to these funds. Oftentimes we've had uh, women come into our emergency shelter or a transitional housing program. And as we begin to talk about finances, it's not that they aren't earning money. It's that they don't have access or control over their own resources. And so it's like starting over. Another way is, you know, we often have women who the abuser has run up credit debt or she's paying rent. She's giving him money and I'm using him as a predominant. But, you know, she could be handing money over to pay rent and he's not paying rent with those resources, right? And so those become issues that will later impact her and her ability to be financially secure. And Nikki, on that, because you experienced the long-term impact of financial abuse, tell us what happened and how it affected you long after, long after you left the relationship. Yeah, I'm definitely still putting my, my life back together. Everything from 
you know, trying to figure out how to pay back taxes because he would take documents and hide them or keep them from me. And I was often too stressed out to to deal with that. Um, ruined credit, either because I was pressured to or he would, without my knowledge, get a credit card, puts a, a bill in my name. I didn't know that happened. Registered a car in my name, racked up a bunch of tickets. And so from time to time, like something pops up and I have to deal with it. It's like this financial whack-a-mole and I'm, you know, well into my life now and I'm just starting to figure out how to take care of myself for the rest of it. How typical, Nikki, is your story? What you just described, how typical is that? I don't think it's unusual at all. It felt unusual and I was in it because like we said at the top, like nobody talks about this. Nobody wants to say, you know, this man is driving me to work in my own car and then go and do what he wants to do all day. Nobody's going to say, you know, this person goes in my purse or goes in my bank account or has access to my PayPal or hacks into my accounts because, you know, the response is, and I still get it, you know, years later, but you're smart, but you're strong, but you're not that person. So we keep it to ourselves. However, once I got in a network of survivors, most of the people that I met either weren't allowed to work at all or worked full-time, more than one job, and never had control over our own finances. Maricela, then considering all we just talked about, this lack of access to money, is that one of the major reasons why women end up unhoused? Yes, it's a lack of access to, to money. It's also lack of support. I remember that the abuser does a really good intentional job of cutting victims and survivors off from any support. They may have strong social networks, and little by little, they are cutting them off from those social networks saying, well, I don't want you visiting your friends that often. I'm not really sure what you're out there doing. You know, your brother doesn't really like me. And so I don't want to go over to visit him. You know, I'm sure he's trying to talk you out of dating me or being married to me. And so all of those things begin to erode those social connections. And when you feel completely isolated and dependent on someone, it's really just difficult to disentangle yourself from that. So feeling like if you leave, you don't have the financial resources and you also don't have the social support that's needed to get you through it emotionally. We've been talking about the intersection of domestic violence and homelessness with Maricela Rios-Faust, Chief Executive Officer of Human Options, Elizabeth Eastland, Executive Director of Rainbow Services, and Nikki Brown, a survivor of intimate partner abuse, who is now an advocate and legal aid attorney. We'll continue our conversation on Take Two in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. I'm Amy Martinez. We pick up with part two of our conversation about the intersection of domestic violence and homelessness. It's part of our ongoing series titled Pushed Out, How Domestic Violence Became the Number One Cause of Women's Homelessness in Los Angeles. Our guests are survivor and advocate Nikki Brown, executive director of Rainbow Services, Elizabeth Eastland, and CEO of Human Options, Maricela Rios Fausts. Now, earlier, you heard how women experiencing intimate partner violence can find themselves with nowhere to go, really, after fleeing an abuser. Now, one service that is available in L.A. County is a 211 number that one can call if they're a survivor and need help. But it's not clear how aware people are about it or how much it helps. In reporting on this, Take Two producer Julia Paskin spoke with survivor Kimberly McLean. When she called 211 looking for help, she says she was given 10 contacts but then was turned down by every single organization she called. Here's Kimberly. If you call 211, there is no connection between the resources that they're giving out and if those resources are up to date, if those resources are for your specific need, if those resources are available. 
Nikki, you had a similar experience a few years ago. When when you called 211, what expectations did you have about the kind of help that you could find? And then what did you actually get? I didn't expect a warm handoff, but I did sort of expect them to be up to date for them to be agencies that matched my circumstances. And the reality is, I same thing, called every one of them. And it was, you're not eligible, you don't qualify, you're not our target, we are full, there's no room, we're not operating anymore. It's not very helpful. I want to talk about some shelter options uh, in a minute, Uh, but Elizabeth, what happens in L.A. County? Can victims reach Rainbow Services through a general line, like we just heard about 211, or do you have to call a direct hotline? Some survivors are connected to us through 211, though, as Nikki described, if we are full and don't have any bed space, then we likely will turn them away. We hope to be able to provide them with good resources, though, because in L.A. County, most of the domestic violence specific shelters do enter information into like a daily bed count. So we're able to provide a a little bit better information as long as agencies are keeping up and entering the information about their bed space to the survivors who call. So we do try and steer them in the right direction. And if they have specific issues or language needs, we understand the system in Los Angeles. So we're able to connect them, though oftentimes there's not a bed available when people reach out. Maricela, is this similar to how Orange County processes general calls for services? We have both. We have the ability to take a warm handoff from 211 in Orange County. Um, and again, that is really dependent on where the handoff goes to. So if 211 hands it to human options, for example, we can assess um, whether we're the appropriate fit for um, the individual who's coming in. And, and that would be something where we're looking at geographic location. Are they too close to where our emergency shelter is, where we think that um, they need to be in a location that's a little bit further away for their own safety? Um, they can also access us through our direct hotline. And typically what we would do is go through an assessment process and see, again, what the, the needs are. If there's availability in terms of bed space within our own emergency shelter, we also have what's called the safety net program. So if there's somebody who is needing to flee and we don't have a bed, but we believe that we can reasonably help support their safety needs in a hotel, then we would put them up in a hotel until we can transition them into our emergency shelter. And then we have a network of other domestic violence service providers here in the county that we would also reach out to to see if they had some space. You know, unfortunately, the need is far greater than there are beds. Um, And so really being able to work in collaboration with other providers throughout the county and across in L.A., becomes really critical for us. Nikki, did you ever wind up getting into that domestic violence shelter? I did not. I actually ended up in a homeless shelter in Los Angeles after a few weeks of of calling and finding that there just weren't resources. I found myself actually really luckily in a in a very safe shelter here in L.A. Nikki, I mean, so what's missing here? I mean, what services needed to help women take that first step to getting out of that abusive relationship? I think the edge I teetered on before I left was wanting to create a plan for when I got out. So I think what would help a lot is if we had the capacity to create a safety plan that one could enact that can move a person from the situation they're in to a safe shelter situation instead of needing to couch surf or sleep in a car or bounce around for some time or spend what little resources you have on a hotel until there's room available. I would have left way sooner if somebody had said, you have an appointment on this day at this time, that's when you go. Elizabeth, what about you? What service do you think is needed to help women take that first step? Well, I think more education about what domestic violence looks like because of the isolation that many survivors face. They they don't know that this is happening, not just to them, that there is a community of survivors out there. So breaking down that isolation It's kind of a double-edged sword. We don't need to advertise our services, and yet we want to ensure that the community knows that we exist. And we don't necessarily need to advertise because if we did, we don't have the capacity to serve everyone who comes to us. And yet we want to make sure that survivors are aware. And like in Nikki's situation, we are able to support her, maybe not with shelter, but with, with supportive services, support groups, rental support legal services, all of those other things, 
even if they're not in our shelter. And Maricela, Nikki, you mentioned how she was sent to a women's homeless shelter, but for survivors of domestic violence, why is that maybe not the right fit? I think depending on um, whether there's safety protocols in place, we want to make sure that survivors aren't re-traumatized when they're in settings with multiple individuals that maybe they're screaming or there's something else going on that, that we recognize as a trigger for many victims and survivors. So we want to be able to work in connection with them around those things. Sometimes emergency shelter isn't necessarily the first step, but being able to help create the safety plan that Nikki referenced, right, is being able to come into one of our walk-in centers and begin a dialogue around, this is something I'm contemplating, really looking at how do you stay safe in your home as you're really contemplating this? Do you need counseling services? What type of legal support or advocacy can we provide? Can we help with credit cleanup? Can we help you talk to your landlord about anything that's coming up? Um, And it's important to really listen and be present when um, survivors are talking about their needs so that they are empowered to make the best choice for themselves. We're talking about how intimate partner violence pushes uh, many women into homelessness with survivor and advocate Nikki Brown, executive director of Rainbow Services, uh, Elizabeth Eastland, and also CEO of Human Options, Maricela Rios-Faust. Now, another aspect to this is single women or what is called unaccompanied women. And and these are women who are not part of a family or a, or a veteran or another category of homelessness. And it's a, it's a point made in this next clip uh, of Amy Turk, director of the Downtown Women's Center. We've called out every population of people experiencing homelessness except for women. And the rationale I hear is that, of course, women especially women who are not in a family unit experiencing homelessness, fall under all these other categories. Veterans, chronically homeless, families and youth. But we've seen that women can really fall out of those categories too. You know, some women are not considered chronically homeless, meaning they haven't literally been homeless long enough to be defined as chronic. All right, so a few things highlighted there. Elizabeth, you work with Amy Turk on the Domestic Violence Homeless Services Coalition, and and you've looked closely at this lack of resources. How many beds does L.A. County have dedicated for survivors of domestic abuse? I want to say about a thousand. And that's both emergency shelter and transitional housing. And to put it in perspective, when we have the right resources, we know we can provide more service. And so last year during the pandemic, LA City created Project Safe Haven, which was essentially the hotel program for survivors, much like Project Room Key for people experiencing homelessness. And we served 3,000 survivors in that program. We essentially doubled the amount of shelter beds available in LA County. Unfortunately, that program didn't continue because the city um, ran out of money for it. Though for Rainbow, we are continuing with that hotel program on a really minimal basis because we see the benefit to being able to have additional beds at a time when we've had to reduce our capacity at our emergency shelter in order to engage with the physical distancing guidelines. Maricela, from a provider's perspective, what are the challenges that you see to getting a survivor placed in a shelter that's that's right for them? Yeah, I, I think some of it becomes the window of time that you have or that we have as a provider with um, the caller. So if a survivor is calling out, they may have 15 minutes. You know, it's really finding that that window of time where we're able to clearly ask questions that need to be asked in order to find are we the best fit. We all know that there can be some pretty strict rules at shelters just for survivors of domestic violence. Elizabeth, can you explain some of those restrictions intended to keep residents safe that maybe wind up either pushing survivors away or even triggering trauma? Oh, yeah. There are many, but if you, off the top of my head, I'll say a lot of shelters will require that you don't continue working. They'll take your cell phone. They have curfews in place. All these things we have done away with at Rainbow. Another eligibility requirement is that people are actively fleeing right now versus, you know, some of us have shared about people stay with their friends or family, couch surf for months before they actually decide, okay, I need to go to a shelter now. And so a lot of domestic violence specific shelters, that person may not be eligible. So at Rainbow, what we did was we extended our eligibility timeline to say, okay, if, if your last incident was six or eight months ago and you now find yourself homeless, call us, you know, because being in a DV specific shelter, at least in LA County, 
will put you in line for DV specific transitional housing and other support. So for survivors, it, it is better for them to come to DV services, though the capacity of our, our system does not come close to meeting the need. Nikki, after everything that you've experienced, what would you like to see change about the safety net for victims of intimate partner violence? If there's one thing that we could guarantee would happen, what would it be? Well, I got to pick one, huh? Okay. I think there's a certain amount of pressure when it comes to accessing services for survivors to be involved with law enforcement. So, for example, if you want to get support from victims of crime to recover for damages that somebody destroyed or medical bills or have help paying for therapy from the trauma, they do have money for that, but they will not help you if you don't have a restraining order. And restraining orders are wonderfully helpful. I help clients get them all the time. But many of them say it's not safe for me to do that. I've gotten clear of the situation. I don't want to poke that bear. I'm afraid to go to court for a million reasons. I think that the pressure to be involved with law enforcement, either calling the police or involved with the courts, getting uh, restraining orders, would be a really big help in terms of letting people get access to the services that are currently available. That's survivor and advocate Nikki Brown, also with us, Executive Director of Rainbow Services, Elizabeth Eastland, and CEO of Human Options, Maricela Rios-Faust. My thanks to all three of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was the first part in Take Two's ongoing reporting series called Pushed Out, How Domestic Violence Became the Number One Cause of Women's Homelessness in L.A. Next week, Take Two's Julia Paskin will bring us the story of one woman's fight for safety and shelter. Police departments all over the U.S. are being called to the carpet to change the culture that leads to excessive use of force. Now, that can be something that's impossible to change once an officer gets their badge and gun and is out on patrol. So instead of waiting that long, how about making that a part of what a recruit learns at the academy level? Find out how California's community colleges partner up with police departments to make those changes. It's next on Take Two. Stay with us. Why do Andy Richter and Fresh Air's Tanya Mosley love what they love? And who will prevail in a live quiz show? Are you ready to have a good time? Go Fact Yourself is back live at the Crawford. Join hosts J. Keith Van Stratton and Helen Hong for a night of trivia and super secret surprise guests in this live taping of the Quiz Show podcast. It's March 23rd. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm e. Martinez. The state of California has 40 police academies, 20 of which are in community colleges. And the number one topic being taught at all of them right now is reforming how they train police officers. Tim Vu is the former chief of police in Alhambra, California. And he's also associate dean and director of the Criminal Justice Training Center at Golden West College in Huntington Beach. He's here to discuss how changes at the training level can better prepare officers to de-escalate tense situations and also better serve the communities in which they work. Tim, welcome to Take Two. Good afternoon. Thank Thank you for having me. Now, take us through the typical curriculum at the police academy at Golden West College. All of the academies in California is certified through the Commission on Peace Officer Standards and Training. And POST requires a certain amount of hours, um, 664 hours to be exact. At Golden West College here, we provide additional training above and beyond the minimum requirement for a total of 1,014 hours of instruction at the academy. 
Over a thousand hours. Wow, that's that's a lot of hours. Yes, it seems like a lot, but you know what law enforcement officers are faced now in policing, a thousand hours may not be enough. The college wanted to add other curriculum and enhance certain parts of the instructions to ensure that our students are getting uh, the training that we believe is important for them to be successful. In certain areas of use of force and de-escalation, we added additional hours to that. In areas of leadership and professionalism, we added hours to that. So we looked through our curriculum and what post requires of us to teach our students. And in the areas that we want to provide additional emphasis, we added hours to that particular learning domain. Now, the murder of a George Floyd um, made police reform a priority for many. But even before that, Golden West uh, made changes to its curriculum to include uh, ethics and implicit bias. Why is that, Tim, important in your view? Police officers' primary function is to work in the community to, to solve problems. As students, they need to be introduced into how to effectively do this in terms of communicating with the community, uh, being ethical in their service to the community, understanding that leadership and legitimacy is important. That was part of the instruction here at the college for many years. It's a model that's being used by other colleges as well. And so we're proud of the fact that we were one of the first colleges to incorporate a large block of community policing as part of our training here. What kind of specific things uh, were you guys doing, uh, even prior to George Floyd, to to help with uh, implicit bias and ethics? Part of that is basically instruction on understanding that everybody has certain biases and recognizing what they are to make sure that they don't affect how they police in the community. And then we also go through different studies that uh, academics have looked at in terms of subconscious prejudice that we all have to have our students talk about it both in a lecture setting and then we have them basically act it out in a kind of a scenario-based training to reinforce what they've learned in the classroom. When it comes to implicit bias, do you tell your students that, hey, we all have it, but it's one thing to have implicit bias, it's another thing to act on it? Yeah, it's, it's recognizing that we all have it and recognizing that if we're not aware of that, it could be an officer's safety situation. An example of that could be, you, you know, women aren't violent, but if, you, if officers go in believing that that's the case, you know, they might drop their guard down, expose themselves to danger and be put in harm's way. I know that uh, you guys go to the Museum of Tolerance as part of uh, implicit bias training. What kinds of discussions have come out of these trips? As a new director, I haven't had a chance to actually accompany them, but I myself have gone as a law enforcement officer too. And it's a one day event and they go there and they get a tour of the museum. They have a facilitator that talks through uh, some of the uh, issues that have happened as a result of discrimination. There's also an opportunity for them to speak to a Holocaust survivor and have them uh, talk about their experiences and how racism and discrimination impact that particular community. So it is important for our students to be exposed to to racism in society and to see how it impacts uh, the community. In terms of de-escalation, Tim, what does that training look like? A lot of it is about discussions on having our students constantly assess the situation, using strategies and techniques that can help to bring that situation down to a level where uh, they're communicating effectively with that individual without ever having to use any force. And then we also allow for our students to go into a a scenario-based where we provide them with basically role players they use what they're being taught in the classroom to try to de-escalate a confrontation with someone that might be agitated, someone that might be in mental crisis. And then what happens is the instructor observes it, and then basically they debrief what the student did well and talk about what that student can do better in the next contact. You know, I've always felt that there is an extreme amount of strength in patience. Um, patience, I can imagine, has a, a big role in this. We do talk about time and distance, taking our time to slow things down, to, to talk through situations, to allow the person to possibly come down from uh, whatever uh, situation that may have caused them to be very uh, emotionally upset. So time um, is a big consideration when we discuss tactics and de-escalation. We're talking to Tim Vu, Associate Dean and Director of Golden West College's Criminal Justice Training Center. So if someone hasn't calmed down, then what do you train your officers to do in terms of use of force? It just depends on the situation. Every situation is unique. Things that they have to constantly assess is, does the person pose a danger to himself or herself? Does that person pose a danger to others, especially when another person is in harm's way or that person might pose a threat to the public? Then, of course, the officer has to take the appropriate action to try to resolve that situation. And how does your program prepare officers when it comes to using deadly force? Well, the program, we talk about the legalities of what the law allows uh, in the classroom. 
And then there's also the scenario-based training that we use here at the academy where students are basically walked through different scenarios with instructors and having the, the students work through that problem to understand whether or not that situation there may require deadly force or not. And we also have a force option simulator, which is a virtual machine here that have different uh, videos of different scenarios that the officer basically have to work out the problem through. And the officer then is uh, constantly being uh, evaluated and assessed. What kind of bystander training uh, do you work on for police officers whose partners might be engaged in misconduct? We train our officers on the duty to intercede, and that is if the officer sees another officer uh, using excessive force, we train the officer to stop the peer officers from doing that, to provide medical assistance to the person that was injured, and to report the incident immediately to the supervisor. So that's being trained both in the, the classroom, but as well as in our practical exercises as well. There have been so many discussions around police reform in California, ranging from whether officers need a college degree to whether they should take mental health calls. In terms of reform at the academy level, Tim, how does that affect how police officers perform their jobs in the communities? Well, one of the things that we did immediately uh, after uh, the George Floyd incident is that we removed from our training curriculum the carotid hold technique that was used prior to that. Uh, we are also looking at if there are different areas within our curriculum that we can improve our training. And specifically, we'll be looking at, again, enhancing our de-escalation training, enhancing the hours implicit bias training that the officer have with the goal of focusing on what we can do to best equip our students to have those contact and to ensure that they're positive outcomes with the minimal use of force. Police misconduct hasn't gone away since the uh, murder of George Floyd. What lessons have you learned from that? And, and what do you hope to bring to training police officers at Golden West College? My hope is to bring kind of what I've experienced as a recent chief uh, working in the profession to try to enhance the curriculum where we can. But I think, again, it's my job to look at our curriculum and to find ways and opportunities for us to reassess what we're training collaborating with our other training institution around the area to find best practices to make sure that our students are policing ethically in our communities. That was Tim Boo, Associate Dean and Director of Golden West College's Criminal Justice Training Center, telling us about police reform at the training level. Tim, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. All right, moving on. Gay troops have been able to serve openly in the military since 2011 when the controversial don't ask, don't tell policy was repealed. But many who were expelled for being gay before the repeal still cannot get veterans benefits. Now states are passing laws to partially address that issue. Desiree DiOrio reports for the American Homefront Project, a collaboration of public radio stations across the U.S., including KPCC. Advocates for LGBT service members estimate as many as 114,000 were discharged for being gay between World War II and the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Some of them received other than honorable discharges, cutting off their access to state and federal veterans benefits. Several states like New York, New Jersey and Colorado have passed laws to restore state military benefits and others are considering it. This needs to be corrected at the federal level as well, but at least at the state level, if you were an LGBT veteran and you received an other than honorable discharge because of your sexual orientation or gender identity, you deserve state benefits. That's Colorado Democratic State Senator Dominic Moreno. He helped write a new law that restores state benefits like education opportunities and military burials. But that still leaves major benefits like full VA health care and the GI Bill out of reach. States cannot upgrade military discharges on their own. Ultimately, it's really a federal issue, particularly if people are seeking health care under TRICARE or if they're seeking all those other benefits. That needs to happen at the federal level. Congress has considered a federal version of the state bills several times. It would offer blanket discharge upgrades to most veterans who were kicked out just for being gay. But it hasn't gone anywhere. Jennifer Dane is with the Modern Military Association of America, an advocacy group for LGBTQ service members. We've been fighting this fight for a really long time. 
you know, we put it in the National Defense Authorization Act every year, or at least try to. Um, and then it gets to the Ways and Means Committee, and it comes back usually that it's too expensive. In Colorado, legislators who voted against the law had other problems with extending state benefits to veterans with less than honorable discharges. Republican Representative Richard Holterf argued on the House floor that it would undercut discharge decisions the military has already made. And rules are rules. The expectation for all service members is that you will follow general orders. You will follow command policy and command directives. You will follow the UCNJ. That is as written at the time of the service. That argument doesn't work for Ashton Stewart. He runs a program called Sage Vets, helping older LGBT veterans get access to benefits. Legislators are hiding behind the integrity issue. It's because they don't want to address the issue that's really happening here, which is discrimination. Stewart helped craft New York's restoration of honor law. He says as more states pass similar laws, he hopes it will pressure the federal government to make the same changes. Navy veteran Lewis Miller was kicked out for being gay in 1992. He says he didn't try to upgrade his other than honorable discharge until recently. I knew I was fighting a losing battle. I didn't try because I knew I couldn't win. Now, Miller's got one win. His application got one of the first approvals after New York's law took effect last year. They gave me a bad piece of paper, but you can't take away what I did there. That's inside of me. That's my honor. You can't take away my honor. What you took away was my recognition of it. The restoration of honor in New York State, that's what it does. It gives me some recognition. Miller says he's always been proud of his service, and now he's proud that New York State recognizes it, too. I'm Desiree DiOrio on Long Island. You know, years ago, I used to dream about my post-radio retirement job. Now, considering how well I know L.A.'s roads and landmarks, I thought it'd be fun to become a tour guide. You know, drive people around, show them L.A. I haven't ruled that out quite yet. But find out how giving people a lift around town will soon become a super quiet experience. That's next when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. Its politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And its food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about L.A. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org, I'm e. Martinez. At least 90% of all miles driven by Uber and Lyft must be done with electric vehicles by 2030. California Air Resources Board unanimously approved that rule last week. Now, it's going to slowly ramp up, starting with a requirement in 2023 that 2% of miles driven by the ride-hailing companies be in electric cars, then adding more miles each year until the 2030 goal is reached. Here to tell us about the new mandate and the current state and future of electric vehicles in California is Deepak Rajagopal, Associate Professor at UCLA's Institute of the Environment and Sustainability. Welcome to Take Two. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. First, uh, let's start off by breaking down this new requirement. So what exactly must Uber and Lyft do and by when? So the basic requirement is that Uber and Lyft um, have to, uh, uh, like you said, uh, meet 90% of all the miles they serve by the year 2030 by uh, with electric miles. Uh, and so, like you also said, it starts with 2% slowly by 2023, 2% of all miles they service has to be uh, electric, uh, ramping up 2, 4, 13 each year. Uh, most of the increase happens in the final three, four years. Uh, it's like backloading this so that mm. there is time to adjust, uh, reaching 90% by um, 2030. 
And there is also a, a target to uh, minimize greenhouse gas emissions per mile, uh, which is actually the motivation for this, mm -hmm. is to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, which contribute to climate change. And uh, correspondingly, those have to be lowered as you go electric, yeah. um, those come down as well. But there is a parallel target for greenhouse gas emissions per mile as well. And the slow ramp up, I would imagine, also uh, factors in to get, let these r people have the cars, right? Because electric yeah. vehicles, if they you know, they don't have them, they're going to have to get them. So who who's going to be paying for these electric vehicles? Is that the state, uh, the individuals themselves, or the companies, the right the right share companies? So the according to the so right now we have uh, it's a very good question, and uh, we have a right now we have incentives, right? We have federal incentives uh, of seventy five hundred dollars. Uh, for electric pure electric plug-in electric vehicles, um, which maxes out at 200,000 uh, sales uh, per automaker, but not many automakers have reached that. Only two, Tesla and GM, have reached that, and there are negotiations mm -hmm. to in expand that. And then there is the state of California incentives, which up to $4,500, uh, which goes on top of that. So first of all, if you add these two incentives together, um, uh, it can it more than compensates for the incremental cost of the electric vehicle. Uh, so the state is doing quite a bit. The state and the federal government are doing quite a bit right now already uh, so to help lower the cost. Um, and so what needs to, I think, happen more is from the ride hailing companies themselves. They also need to step up and do something. In fact, you know, they are already committed, right? Uh, yeah. Both Uber and Lyft have committed to 100%. So this regulation is actually exactly saying what they voluntarily committed, both committed to 100% uh, by 2030, electric actually. So there's no surprises um, so here. I mean, they know what they're, they're into now. Right. And uh, exactly. So it's, it's, uh, it's essentially... Uh, 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 you know, uh, putting some teeth to what they voluntarily committed to. That's all. Now yeah. he's going to hold them. We are going to hold them to it. So, yeah, uh, there is some work to be done. Just to complete the question is like you know, there is some work to be done which we could do uh, more at a at a at a at a public level to support this is infrastructure, which is uh, you know for yeah. a lot of good reasons in the public sphere uh, that we could help uh, more uh, happen. Deepak, I think that's what's stopping a lot of people from even thinking about buying an electric car. Forget about Uber and Lyft drivers, but I think that's what that's the biggest obstacle I think for a lot of people is finding the infrastructure or having the infrastructure to be confident that they can plug up and. Yes. And power up, absolutely. And uh, you know, it's very uh, it's very important to actually target the Uber and Lyft sector because, from a social perspective, these are the cars that get get driven a lot. Yeah. The Uber and Lyft and taxis, uh, they all get driven two and a half to three times the average vehicle. So if you electrify them, you get a lot of lot more greenhouse gas and air pollution benefits. But these are also the people that drive a lot and need a lot of range. And uh, today we are seeing the cars that are coming online have 250 to 300 miles range. The Chevy Bolt has 250 miles, the Teslas, but it's a very expensive car. Uh, but, you know, so we need to uh, both increase the amount of range that is there in the cars, which is happening. But we also need to start making, uh, uh, you know, electric charging stations omnipresent, just like gas stations. And it's, yeah, it's doable. That's what we need to do, though. Talking to Deepak Rajagopal, associate professor at UCLA's Institute of the Environment and Sustainability. Now, back in 2019, you surveyed Lyft and Uber drivers here in LA about the possibility of adopting electric vehicles into ride-hailing companies. What did you find out? Yeah. So, yeah, we, um, along with uh, some colleagues from Ohio State, I also want to give them credit. We did a survey of uh, Uber and Lyft drivers, about 400 drivers. Uh, I don't remember the exact numbers, but in the fall of 2019, uh, you know, uh, we asked them questions on various aspects of, uh, you know, their, the, uh, their perceptions. We want to understand yeah. their perceptions, their state of knowledge, and also uh, correlate that with uh, you know, uh, they are so the basic demographic information, their level of education, how much they make, how much they drive, how many vehicles they own. And what we found was, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very detailed study. The main takeaways were, um, you know, we need to do a lot more in terms of getting more information into the hands of the drivers as to what are the pros and cons um, uh, of the electric vehicles, actually um, getting them information that um, given the amount they drive, they can actually recover the extra cost they, they would shell out in less than uh, eight months to 10 months. You know, if you pay a little bit extra after taking into account the tax credits and stuff, they can recover. And basically they need to be, they need information on how they can charge. And one interesting thing I will say is a lot of them that drive, uh, 
you know, we have a whole range of drivers, right? Some drive for two hours a day and some drive for many hours a day. And the people that drive for many hours a day take some breaks. Yeah. And uh, the amount of breaks they take, they say that, you know, uh, they are not, they're not really asking for five minute charging. They're not asking for 10 minute charging. They're willing to tolerate 30 minutes to charge a car huh. uh, if it coincides with a break so that they can also relax. And so if we can actually think of these charging stations, and this is what Uber and Lyft will have to do. In fact, it's not very difficult for them. If they can come up with some nice areas that dedicated to their drivers that are rest, relax, uh, rest, relax. And recharge, and literally recharge, recharge both recharge, the human and, and the car. 30 minutes, yeah. you can get actually 100 miles, 150 miles. That's plenty for traffic with heavy traffic driving. You don't go that many miles actually yeah. in heavy traffic. So Deepak, let me, ask you the, let me ask you this. So in the time we have left, only because I, you know every person that I know that owns an electric vehicle is someone that is a homeowner pretty much, that uh, right. that has the money to, to have a charging station at home and has the money to take advantage of the, of the, of the advantages of, of buying an electric car. Is there any fear at all that a mandate like this could push lower income folks out of these jobs, people who rely on having this side hustle, you know, you know, so to speak, to make some extra cash? I think that's a real concern. I think that is a real concern. We need to pay attention to that. And I think we need to because the drivers drive for Uber and Lyft, uh, more people who drive more actually are probably doing it uh, uh, will also need a lot of help uh, because they're relying on it more. But um Essentially, uh, the we have to figure out a way for people that live in multi-unit dwellings that don't have access to a parking garage, how we can actually have those multi-unit dwellings through the for the newer um, construction. We need to mandate a certain share be uh, electric vehicle ready. And I think it's yeah. already, I'm not an expert on those uh, regulations, but they're all already, I think people are aware of that. But we also need to figure out a way to retrofit existing and give incentives and again i said infrastructure has to be the focus from a state perspective we have given enough and, incentives and information as you said people need exactly. to know what's available and what's out there yeah. that's deepak rajagopal associate professor at ucla's institute of the environment and sustainability deepak thank you very much thank you If you missed any part of Take Two, just head on over to wherever you get your podcasts. There we will be waiting to be heard by you. You can also find us on Twitter at Take Two. I'm there as well at A Martinez LA. That's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back tomorrow at two. Marketplace is next. Hey, it's Brian, the host of the How to LA podcast. How about we go to the movies? Join us for a 10-part series, Revival House, and discover the magic of L.A.'s indie theaters. Who knows? You might meet someone. I know it sounds antithetical because you're just sitting passively, but in fact, you're connecting with everyone else around you. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts.